In the spring of 2017, we did an episode which was all about Konami's VRC7 sound expansion and the Lagrange Point soundtrack. You might not expect there to be anything new to say about a chip that's over 25 years old, but earlier last year, new discoveries were made by the community. If you want to hear our deep dive into the VRC7, be sure to check out episode 19. But to give some context to this discussion and the updates we're going to present, let's do a quick refresher for the listeners. As we've pointed out in previous sound expansion episodes, the original Japanese version of the NES, known as the Famicom, differed a little bit from the NES in a few small ways. Despite essentially being the same console with a different look, it had some extra features like sound expansion. Uh, It allowed for external audio sources to be routed through the console, allowing for the number of sound channels to be increased uh, beyond what the stock NES or Famicom were capable of producing on their own. In the case of the VRC7, it offered six new sound channels of two-operator FM synthesis. In Lagrange Point, the only game that used the VRC7 for sound expansion, the original five channels provided by the Famicom were reserved primarily for percussion. So you get to hear FM melodies on top of NES drumming, essentially. In episode 19, we discussed how the soundtrack, when emulated, will differ a bit from the game when it's run on hardware. The VRC7 comes with a bunch of preset instrument patches, but due to the way the die was made, it made it incredibly difficult to read the binary data from the ROM, so we couldn't actually see the values that made up those instrument patches. As a result, all the preset instruments of the VRC7 were created through careful guesswork in an attempt to reverse engineer them. So that means that when you listen to the NSF or the you know play the game in an emulator, you're listening to someone's best guess for those sounds. We'll talk a little bit more about how that guesswork was actually a lot better than we had realized, but we'll start with the good news. The, so basically, the real instrument data has been discovered, uh, maybe. Yeah, so uh, a debug mode for the VRC7 was discovered, which allowed someone uh, by the handle of nuke.ykt to get a dump of the data. How did that come about? Was some kind of discovery or breakthrough made that allowed that? Well, so I asked our friend David Vienne about that, and actually he says that Nuke was mysterious about his technique for analyzing the die image, uh, so like it might be his own sort of uh, trade secret in a way. Ah, okay, but I guess we got all the info we needed anyway, right? Well, Nuke included a disclaimer saying that he hadn't been able to test his findings on hardware and it could be subject to errors. Uh, David Vian did independently verify a certain aspect of Nuke's findings, so the info is partially corroborated and is looking good so far. Uh, But we just sort of have to trust that the updated instrument data is actually accurate for now. So, assuming that it is, we can finally hear the soundtrack more accurately through emulation, right? Well, about that. The differences are actually incredibly subtle. There was reverse engineering and guesswork done by Rain Warrior for NSF Play, and also independently by David Vien and Madbrain for Chipsynth's Porta FM, and their reverse engineering in both cases turned out to be very well refined. Uh, you can rarely hear a difference. 
Oh, well, I guess so we probably misled our listeners into thinking not having the actual instrument data was more significant than it actually was. Yeah, in the episode, we played back-to-back comparisons of hardware and emulation, and you could hear a difference. Here's patch number four, first on hardware, then again through emulation with the older patch data. You can hear some higher frequencies in the second one, like it's a bit buzzier sounding. The problem with this comparison is that it was presented as if it was showing some kind of flaw stemming from unknown instrument data, when in actuality, it just boils down to the subtle issues with emulating all the quirks of the hardware. It doesn't actually come from having a few parameters of instrument data being slightly off. This becomes immediately apparent when you compare the old instruments with the new instruments side by side through emulation. Let's listen again to the older version emulated, then to the new accurate one emulated. And again, let's listen to just the last note of that sequence. Yes, so unlike our first demonstration, there's no clear distinction between the before and after. Rain Warrior actually listed out all the differences between his patches and the final ones. We'll link to the uh, thread on that. What we just heard in patch 4 actually had four different values or settings that were off. The attack, output, sustain, and release of the modulator signal had different values. But the carrier signal, he guessed completely correctly on that one. Well, that's good. (laughs) Yeah, so even though four mistakes sounds like it could be a lot on paper, in practice, these only manifest as extremely subtle differences. Uh, Rain Warrior pretty much nailed it. Well, okay, so if he nailed it, what what instrument did he do that was like the most off then? I'm curious. So uh, from what I could see, instrument 11 had eight differences, uh, seven differences in the modulator signal, and one difference in the carrier signal. Yeah, so, you know, it's still kind of subtle, but you could actually hear how the second example was maybe, it's like more percussive with, it, with yeah. the way the notes attack. Um, but that's, mm-hmm. that, like, that's it, though. Like, that's as big of a difference as there was. That's really impressive. So if he was that far off on one, what, how close did he get on some of them? Patches 1 and 7 each only had one value that was off. That's crazy. So that's the, crazy. The, yeah, it's like minimally, that's like as little as off from perfect as you could be. And when you remember the other example that had four differences and they yeah. didn't sound different at all, one difference is it's basically perfect. And, and all by ear. That's crazy. Yep. So we have to remember that we're doing things like isolating sound channels to do these close-up comparisons. But when you have all the sound channels running together, the differences are even harder to spot. Like, there's not even a point in playing a before and after comparison. Yeah, you're just not going to hear a difference. So unlike how we kind of framed it in the VRC7 episode, like getting the correct instrument data wasn't necessarily the holy grail of VRC7 emulation like we thought it was. But nonetheless, it does get us closer to accuracy and it does help wrap up a mystery. Has this discovery resulted in actual updates to emulation? Yeah, so Rain Warrior released an update of NSF Play in March that uses the correct instrument data now for the VRC7. So if you have NSF Play, but it's not version 2.4, be sure to grab the update. But as far as other emulators go, like ones that let you actually play the game, uh, I haven't found any that have been updated for this. But based off our earlier comparisons the much greater difference between emulation and hardware comes from the general emulation issues. Improving the instrument data would only be a bu- drop in the bucket compared to refining the overall emulation of the you know VRC7 itself. Yeah. So getting the accurate patch data wasn't the only finding here. 
Apparently, three drum instruments were found on the VRC-7 as well. And not to get too deep into that rabbit hole again, but the VRC-7 is a derivative of Yamaha's OPLL chip. The OPLL chip had a weird thing where it could split the number of sound channels it had in two different ways, like two different configurations. It either had nine simultaneous melodic sound channels, or that nine could be reduced to six, but you would also gain five more rhythm tones that could be played simultaneously for a total of 11 sound channels, essentially. Yeah, uh, but in this case, there's no output pin for the rhythm sounds, and it's not something that can be enabled. The VRC7 was essentially locked into the rhythm mode of the OPLL, but without gaining the extra rhythm channels. So we only see six channels uh, instead of nine or 11. Finding the drum instruments on the VRC7 feels a bit like discovering a vestigial organ. They're the remnants of something that used to be there, and the functionality is missing. But just because it doesn't work properly doesn't mean we can't copy the extracted drum data and just run it through patch zero of the VRC7. Yeah, instrument zero is the one that lets you build your own sounds, uh, unlike instruments one through 15, which are, those are all the preset patches. So you can just paste those unused drum presets back into instrument zero. Uh, here's the bass drum sound, putting some you know random beats and pitches in. Here's the unused snare sound. And the unused tom sound. So it's pretty cool being able to hear these hidden VRC7 drums for the first time, but they appear to be identical to the drums from the OPLL. So if you've heard them off that chip before, then you've heard them before. Yeah, and actually our line of evidence for this is that David recreated the... OPLL drums by ear, and the values of the VRC7 drums were once again super, super close to what he came up with. So we can be fairly certain they're the same, and David says that this finding can now actually be used to improve uh, OPLL emulation, and it already has for his Porta FM software. So you mentioned earlier that David did corroborate another finding of Nukes. Which was that? Ah, so that was the sort of hidden or removed capability of unlocking all nine sound channels on the VRC7. So this is yet another sign of missing features carrying over from the OPLL. Yeah, but it doesn't really play ball with hardware. Uh, I'll just quote what David told me. He says, it would need basically destroying the cart and making around 30 or so wire changes. And even then, not sure the VRC7 would work as a straight mapper anymore. I only tested it on my standalone VRC7 proto board. Trying it on the cart failed miserably, like the game didn't even boot anymore, if I recall correctly. Oh wow, that's a lot of work to get that working. <laughs> but nonetheless, David did that, and he made a demo of the VRC7 playing nine different voices simultaneously. So unless you've already heard the same demo that was posted to his Twitter in March, which is at PLGDavid, uh, this will be the first time hearing the VRC7 doing this. So that pretty much covers what we want to share about the new findings on the VRC7, but we also wanted to bring up a couple other things before wrapping up. We made another error in the VRC7 episode where, when we discussed how the original sound channels of the NES were used in Lagrange Point, we said that the triangle channel was unused. This is actually incorrect. It was used once in the track titled Aqueduct. You can hear this deep pitch bend sound, and that's the triangle wave showing up once as a sort of low tom. I'm kind of surprised we missed that, but I think when I put that into the script, I had a general understanding that it was like, 
you know, basically never showing up, but I didn't properly listen to every track in its entirety looking for it, so I think that was kind of like an off-the-cuff statement that I should have looked uh, closer at. Okay, so we should also bring up uh, Kevin's published work about the VRC7. Earlier this year, uh, an academic book titled Music and Role-Playing Games was released, and our friend Dr. Kevin Burke wrote a chapter all about Lagrange Point and the VRC7. So not only is it great to have a proper citable source that's out there, which, you know, like that's often lacking for obscure video game music and sound chips. <laughs> Absolutely. Considering that this podcast actually gets quoted sometimes for that stuff, too. <laughs> yep. Uh, it, it also has some handy breakdowns and information in there. Like just one example, there's a table explaining how all of the original sound channels are used for percussion in LaGrange Point. Like it names and lists out all of the unique drum voices that are found in the soundtrack. And then it goes sound channel by sound channel, checking off like, yep, this channel was used for that or this was used for that. Yeah. And I guess if we had that in front of us, we wouldn't have missed the triangle usage. Yep. Because you just look at the listing for triangle, you see the check mark and it's like, oh, there it is. (laughs) <laughs> so there's a bunch of good stuff like that in there. It, it's a handy resource that anyone discussing the VRC7 in the future uh, would probably find helpful. We'll link to the book in the episode's description. So I think this makes for a very good reminder that anything we talk about is potentially a very, very, very deep rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes we can make mistakes or even new discoveries can be made. And, you know, we'll always do our best to address them when we can. Um, you know, we want to be as accurate as possible. We do as much research as we can. And it's actually good if we're proven wrong because something new came out because w- the ultimate goal is to find the truth about this stuff and to share as much information as we can. Yes. Um, so that that's really why we do this, you know. Mm-hmm. So I guess with that said, is there anything else we want to bring up? Sure. One last thing before we close out this mini episode, I checked in with Kevin to get a refresher, you know, because like when we were preparing for the VRC7, there was a lot of back and forth discussion and sort of scattered research. Um, But he remembered a couple things he didn't find room to mention in his chapter, I think, and nor did we discuss them in the episode. So like this is a bit random and maybe out of context, but just a couple more of the Grange point fun facts, if you will. Oh, okay. In Halley's liner notes for the LaGrange Point Returns CD, there is some more insight and detail provided about LaGrange Point based on Halley's conversation with sound designer Atsushi Fujio. One was that a space manbow track was used to test the VRC7 instruments. It said that Fujio consulted space manbow as a reference, being it also had a space sound. And when the VRC7 prototype board was completed, a song from space manbow was the test song. Additionally, I believe we did mention how few tracks in LaGrange Point were submitted as part of a contest for outside composers, but we can point to a specific judge for that contest. It was Motoaki Furukawa, who, according to one source, was the main guitarist for Konami's in-house band Kukeha Club. Uh, We can link to a couple pages on that musician. So with these updates, uh, I guess that wraps things up for now. Thank you for listening to Retro Game Audio.